This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. Was the Second Vatican Council a huge mistake? On October 11, 1962, the Second Vatican Council began. Over the next three years, it transformed the way that millions of Catholics worldwide practice their faith. Now it is 60 years later, and it is time to determine the effects of the Council. That is the goal of this episode of the Return to Order Moment. So we begin with an essay by author and scholar Mr. Luis Sergio Salomeo. He asks the important question, The Second Vatican Council turned 60. Is there any reason to celebrate? The media, and particularly Catholic media, highlighted October 11th's commemorations of the opening of the Second Vatican Council's 60th anniversary. Illustrative photos show the massive procession of bishops entering St. Peter's Basilica for the Catholic Church's 21st Ecumenical Council in 1962. However, one might ask if there is a real cause for celebration. Our Lord said that a tree is known by its fruit. Quote, A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a bad tree good fruit. Matthew chapter 7, verse 18. So what are the Council's fruits? The Church has suffered unprecedented wear and tear during the 60 years since Vatican II. For example, in Brazil, still the world's largest Catholic country, this phenomenon translated into a loss of fervor and moral decay, and above all, a mass apostasy of the faithful. They left the Catholic Church, fell into indifferentism, or joined Pentecostalist so-called evangelical sects. The Brazilian Institute of Geography and Statistics reported that, according to the 2010 census, the number of Catholics in Brazil dropped from 93.1% in 1960, shortly before the Council began, to 64.6% in 2010, 50 years after the event. Instead of having flourishing communities during the so-called springtime of the church, as the council was called, the church in Brazil suffered a 28.5 percentage drop. Similar losses of faithful happened practically all over the world. Even worse, one sees no trend toward a recovery of the church in Brazil. While the number of evangelicals has increased by an average of 0.8% a year since 2010, that of Catholics has decreased by 1.2% annually over the same period. The church crisis already existed before the Council and was a cause of concern to zealous Catholics. Many expected that the Council would take the doctrinal and disciplinary measures needed to curb the causes of this crisis. Instead, it preferred to embrace novelties and abandon tradition. We can see the difference if we compare the Second Vatican Council with the Council of Trent, 1545-1563, which was convened to deal with the Protestant Revolt. Trent vigorously reaffirmed the truths of the faith and condemned theological errors and clergy abuses that favored Luther's and other pseudo-reformers' revolt. Those measures started the Counter-Reformation movement, which rekindled Catholic fervor in countries like Spain, Italy, and France. 
It also brought back entire regions of Europe that had fallen into heresy. Such revival allowed missionaries to take the faith to the Americas and Asia. What has happened then for us to find ourselves where we are? Briefly, a climate of optimism dominated the West after World War II. Among other factors, the progress of industrialization and technology contributed to this. The happy ending atmosphere spread by Hollywood movies, along with increasingly risque fashions, especially those for women, led to a loss of the virtue of modesty. Meanwhile, false prophecies and theologies met practically no resistance as they infiltrated seminaries and universities. As a result, the typically Catholic spirit of penance and zeal for the faith gradually disappeared and gave way to the enjoyment of life, a loss of the sense of sin and awareness of the supernatural end of human existence. Consequently, fervor and the spirit of vigilance and militancy waned. In 1943, Plinio Correa de Oliveira launched a book titled In Defense of Catholic Action to denounce the advance of evil doctrines and dangerous tendencies that were rampant in the Catholic movement. Unfortunately, his wake-up call went unheard. John XXIII called the council and summed up its purpose in one word, aggiorniamento, an Italian expression that translates as updating or modernization of the Catholic Church. Cassiano Florestan and Juan José Tamayo write, quote, John XXIII implored the term aggiorniamento to establish the fundamentally pastoral character of Vatican II. In the Councilor texts, the word aggiorniamento is translated with the Italian words accommodatio, accommodation, adoptio, adaptation, renovatio, renovation, reformatio, reform. It is never translated as restoratio or restoration. That means that the council was not intended to be a return to the past. Updating is, therefore, reform and innovation by following Christ. Unquote. Optimism quickly leads to a distorted view of reality, whereby a person avoids considering evil and, from a religious point of view, the effects of original sin on us, that is, the tendency toward evil and sin. John XXIII set the Council's optimistic tone in the Great Assembly's opening speech, titled Gaudete Mater Ecclesiae, Mother Church Rejoices, October 11, 1962. Facing the errors of the present times, in his speech, Pope Roncalli declared, quote, The Church has always opposed these errors and often condemned them with the utmost severity. Today, however, Christ's bride prefers the balm of mercy to the arm of severity. She believes that the present needs are best served by explaining more fully the purport of her doctrines rather than by publishing condemnations, unquote. In other words, 
The council would not condemn the errors of the time, but rather dialogue with them, as we shall see. We do well to recall that all of Eastern Europe and parts of Asia and the Americas, notably Cuba, were then under the communist yoke. However, the council failed to make the slightest mention of this scourge of humanity. The Pope rejected the thoughts of those, quote, prophets of doom who are always forecasting disaster, unquote. He was referring to those concerned with the evils of our time. Giacomo Cardinal Biffy, 1928-2015, Archbishop of Bologna, contradicted John XXIII's prophets of doom criticism by recalling that, in Scripture, true prophets announced punishments and calamities. On the contrary, quote, the Bible's false prophets usually proclaimed the imminence of calm and quiet hours. See Ezekiel chapter 13. Quote, God declares against false prophets and prophetesses that deceive the people with lies, unquote. This dominant optimism led the council to regard error and heresy as secondary issues. In keeping with the wishes of John XXIII, which Paul VI did not change, instead of fighting them and proclaiming the truth, the Second Vatican Council documents preach utopian dialogue. The Council's goal was to achieve the unity of all religions rather than conversion and insert the Church into the modern world. Another expression of the reigning optimism was to, quote, open the Church's windows, unquote, so an air of modernity could enter. The documents with the greatest impact were those establishing a friendly dialogue with Protestants and Schismatics, Decree Unitasis Reintegratio, with non-Christian and pagan religions, Declaration Nostra Aete, and with the modern world, Pastoral Constitution Gaudium et Spes. Our Lord did not teach us to dialogue with error and evil, but to remain faithful to the truth he taught. Quote, If you continue in my word, you shall be my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. See John 8, 31-33. Nor did the Divine Master preach openness to the world, but always warned the disciples that it was their enemy. Quote, if you had been of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hated you. See John 15 verse 19. For the first time in church history, and against all tradition, the Council advocated public freedom to propagate heresy and error while emphasizing that one must seek the truth. The Declaration Dignitatis Humanae affirms that religious freedom proceeds from human dignity and that, quote, no one is to be forced to act in a manner contrary to his own beliefs, whether privately or publicly, whether alone or in association with others within due limits, unquote. 
While it is true that no one can be compelled to act against his right conscience, it does not follow that anyone can propagate error and heresy with impunity, even if he considers them true. As Leo XIII says, Liberty is a power perfecting man, and hence should have truth and goodness for its object. If the mind assents to false opinions, and the will chooses and follows after what is wrong, neither can attain its native fullness, but both must fall from their native dignity into an abyss of corruption. Whatever, therefore, is opposed to virtue and truth may not rightly be brought temptingly before the eye of man, much less sanctioned by the favor and protection of the law. Unquote. Confusion in Vatican II documents touches on the absurd in matters of primary importance, such as God's nature. According to the dogmatic constitution Lumen Genitum, quote, the Muslims, along with us, adore the one and merciful God, unquote. This claim that Christians and Muslims worship the one God is yet another manifestation of the conciliar document's dialectical aspect, denying the principle of non-contradiction. For while Catholics believe and profess the doctrine of the Holy Trinity and worship the one and triune God, Muhammad's followers deny this truth and fight it, accusing Christians of being polytheists. Much more could be examined in the documents of Vatican II and confronted with the traditional church teaching. However, that is not possible in this short space. Strictly speaking, Vatican II was not an event, but the beginning of a process to reform the Church of Christ. The Ecclesia Semper Reformata preached by Protestants and Modernists. Its most recent iteration is Pope Francis's Synod on Synodality, which will draw out the ultimate consequences of what was presented confusingly 60 years ago. Cardinal Hollerick, the Synod's general rapporteur, affirms all of France's synodality comes from the Council. The Council, through its documents and how they were applied, effected an almost complete change of mentality in many Catholics. It led them to abandon the spirit of sacrifice, piety, and the sense of sacrality, and to embrace the world with its pomps and works. So we are back to the initial question. Is there any reason to celebrate? We can apply to Holy Mother Church the Carthusian motto, The cross is steady while the world turns. Despite all the crises she goes through on her earthly journey, the Church always remains stable and faithful to the cross of Christ, His immutable doctrine and unalloyed holiness. Let us not forget our Lord's promise. I am with you all days, even to the consummation of the world. Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. Of course, something as momentous as the Second Vatican Council did not happen by mistake. It was the result of long, careful, and largely secret preparation. Mr. Gustavo Salomeo expands on that idea in his essay, explaining the change of mentality that made Vatican II possible. 
Many Catholics have traced the philosophical and theological roots of the present crisis inside the Church. This research does much to explain the evolution of the doctrines that undermine the faith. However, it does not explain everything. There are other aspects of the practice of the faith involving habits, culture, and customs that also changed. Understanding these developments is an essential part of the fight for the Church. Catholic thinker Professor Plinio Correa de Oliveira explained the process that led to a change of mentality inside the Church and played a role in the acceptance of erroneous doctrine, as well as new ways of being and thinking that departed from Catholic tradition. This change in mentality explains why Catholics were prepared to accept modernism almost without resistance after the death of St. Pius X, who fought against it. It helps explain why, after Vatican II, Catholic faithful accepted with euphoria the abandonment of cassocks, religious habits, chapel veils, and other pious customs. His penetrating analysis of the psychological and spiritual phenomenon shows how all this was made possible. The shift prepared the doctrinal changes that would come. An outline of his analysis follows. The proclamation of the dogmas of the Immaculate Conception, 1854, and especially the dogma of papal infallibility and the primacy of the Pope, 1870, provoked a worldwide wave of enthusiasm and fervor among Catholics. Episcopate, clergy, and the faithful all applauded these proclamations. At the same time, religious congregations and Catholic works multiplied. Missionaries spread the gospel to all continents, despite persecutions in Africa and Asia. The faith flourished despite hostile governments in France and Germany. The clergy was generally zealous and worthy. Numerous saints appeared, some of which were beatified or canonized. However, optimism took hold of a good part of the episcopate, the clergy, and the faithful. They fell prey to insouciance and complacency with the apostolic successes obtained. The consequence was a loss of momentum. It did not immediately lead to decay, but a diminishing desire to go higher. This spirit affected the clergy and religious orders and had a negative impact on the faithful. This diminishment of fervor led to a stagnation that progressively affected the clergy from top to bottom, causing a consequent decay in the fervor of the faithful. According to the famous French Cistercian abbot and writer Dom Jean-Baptiste Chotard, 1858-1935, there is a relationship between clergy and people which he expressed in this way, quote, If the priest is a saint, the people will be fervent. If the priest is fervent, the people will be pious. If the priest is pious, the people will at least be decent. But if the priest is only decent, the people will be godless. 
The spiritual generation is always one degree less intense in its life than those who beget it in Christ. Unquote. The spiritual decay was characterized by the loss of fervor, the spirit of self-denial, the desire for renunciation, and a deadening of enthusiasm for the faith. It gradually led to a change of mentality in the clergy and the faithful, by which they lost the notion of the militant church. Indeed, long before the Second Vatican Council, a sentimental and sweetened piety spread among Catholics. On the sidelines, some fervent priests battled against liberals who preached revolutionary doctrines. However, most mainstream Catholics heard sermons or read publications that contained pious and abstract considerations about humility, charity, and other virtues valid for any time and place, but completely disconnected from the concrete battles of the Church. When preachers spoke of combat or struggle, they referred almost exclusively to spiritual combat or the struggle against the passions and bad inclinations. They never, or almost never, mentioned the fight against the enemies of the church, whether they be external or internal. This one-sided preaching led to the systematic omission of any idea of militancy. It contributed to a deformation of the Catholic mentality. Catholics assumed a merely passive attitude toward the enemies of the Church. The loss of the militant spirit did not directly lead to the acceptance of modern errors and deviation. However, it did contribute to the weakening of resistance to such errors and deviations. It changed the mindset of countless Catholics who came to believe that to fight error or to admonish a person in error is not charitable. The loss of the militant spirit produced a state of prostration, drowsiness, and boredom. The general lethargy surrounding this state of affairs concealed a discontent and an undefined uneasiness that awakened in people a desire for change. This phenomenon was aggravated by the Second Vatican Council, which created an atmosphere of optimism, ecumenism, and dialogue that excluded the idea of struggle. The times immediately following the Council were marked by euphoria and optimism that is hard to understand by those who did not live through those tragic days. Optimistic expressions of change pervaded everything. Everywhere there was talk of aggiornamento, participation in the vernacular liturgy, and increased participation of the faithful in the life of the Church. The famous quote attributed to John XXIII said it all, We must open the windows so that fresh air can enter the church. When the idea of struggle is absent, the spirit of vigilance diminishes or ceases altogether. The lack of vigilance, along with lukewarmness and little faith, had bitter but not unexpected fruit in the infidelity of so many priests and prelates that gave rise to the sexual abuse scandals of the present day. Thus, 
The grave situation of the papacy today is not the cause of the present crisis, but rather, to some extent, a consequence of this crisis. The present pontificate could not have taken place without the process of a profound deterioration of the whole social body of the Church, including the episcopate, clergy, and faithful. This process destroyed the natural defenses, the antibodies that would have allowed the body to react. Unfortunately, not only the head, but all parts of the body are sick. A mysterious virus infects the entire organism. Not even drastic surgery can bring the body back to health. In non-metaphorical terms, the very unlikely election of a conservative or even a holy pope in a future conclave will not be enough to restore full normality in the life of the Church. At the same time, the possibility of the Church emerging from this crisis and returning to normal is impossible without the restoration of temporal society that is affected by a crisis of apocalyptic proportions. Thus, only divine intervention can save the Church and the world from the chaos and madness that now seems to reign everywhere. This crossroads makes all the more timely the message of Our Lady of Fatima, who foresaw these times and proposed divine solutions. This concludes. Was the Second Vatican Council a huge mistake? Thank you for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is only a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please remember that we publish a new episode every week as Tuesday becomes Wednesday at midnight. There are two ways to make sure you don't miss future episodes. The first way is to subscribe through your favorite podcast provider. Another is to go to our website, www.returntoorder.org, and click on the podcast link at the top of the page, which will take you to a list with the most recent podcast on top. We ask subscribers to give us a five-star rating with the servers through which you are listening to it. Increased subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will be directed to the Return to Order moment when searching for new podcasts. So by rating us, you can help Return to Order be more effective. In addition, subscribers gain access to all the previous episodes of the Return to Order moment. We would also like to recommend the book, which spells out the motivations behind our work. Mr. John Horvath's book, Return to Order, is available as a free download through our website www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2022 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP.